What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Rhiannon Stroud, Head of Strategy at McCann Synergy in Bristol, England. Welcome, Rhiannon. Hi, thank you very much. We're going to talk about employee engagement and employer brand things today, which is exciting. I've touched some of some projects in that space and uh, I, I, from talking to other friends who work exclusively in that space, there's, there's always this pride in what they do that they don't feel is understood by the broader strategy advertising and marketing worlds. Is that you, Rhiannon? Yeah, you've, you've pretty much got me straight away there. Definitely. Um, I think it's a bit of an unsung hero in not just marketing and planning and comms, but in actually the role that it plays in the global economy, the way the world works, the way the world um, keeps moving. And uh, I'm, on, I'm on a one-woman mission to get it at the top of every C-suite level agenda for, for, for the rest of my life, I think. <laughs> and if we know anything, we know that one women mission from Bristol can take over the world. And that's an oh, obscure, yeah. obscure music reference that someone's going to actually need to prove. I just felt like saying something dramatic. Some, someone will get it. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you tell us what McCann Synergy does? Sure. So Synergy itself, up until March 2020, we were an independent agency that specialised in employee engagement and employer brand. Um, our purpose is that we believe in the power of people. So we really believe that the people in organisations have the ability to transform the organisation, the products, the sales, the world that they reach. Um, and that really your customer experience is your employee experience. And everyone's so focused these days on competing on CX and product. And lots of people are still forgetting the EX part of that. So we've always specialized in that um, for a long time now. And in March, we were acquired by the McCann World Group. Um, and now looking forward to sort of, I guess, helping us and helping the McCann guys go deeper and further on that brand engagement piece so that they can be offering a really joined up holistic response to clients to say, yeah, you want to sell more of X? Okay, well, we need to engage the people who are selling it first and starting to look at that as one whole piece. Yeah, it's, it's funny when you're starting out in the strategy world and you're more in the creative brief writing, which is a small part of the strategy yeah. world. It's a subset of the brand strategy world as well. It's a, it's a small set, but it's often very heroic or you feel very heroic when people allow you near a creative brief template when yeah. you start starting out. And, you know, I, I, there are a few of us who bought into this idea of what I would call like brand-led businesses where mm -hmm. hopefully the strategy you come up with for the brand can actually change the business, which means that the business model might change around the brand. The example I often give is... Uh, is with Viagra. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Viagra as a business moved to something to do with intimacy, helping intimacy. And, you know, there's more flowery language around that, that mm -hmm. it's like, well, what's the business model around that as opposed to what's the ad for that? And over time, you're like, hang on, okay, we've got a decent little creative brief. There's a good idea here, but it needs to connect to the inside of the company. It needs to connect to the CEO. And often that was a bridge that the creative agency thought they were able to cross, but yeah. often weren't allowed to cross. And after a while, you can feel a little bit like flaccid. Yeah. Uh, nice. Awkward tie into Viagra, and I didn't mean it. Yeah, like, I know. I, I really enjoyed I, that. I, I, you know, I'm not trying to be dirty, but I, I mean it spiritually. You're like, oh, like we could do so much stuff here, but we're not able to cross yeah. the bridge to bring these things together. Have you felt the opposite at times? That sometimes you were trying to come up with em employer brand or employee engagement thinking and strategy and you weren't able to cross the bridge into the thing that could really affect the outside world? 
Yeah, I think there's a couple of things there. There's, um, I guess, reassurance that I still feel a bit of that, um, where I'm dealing with clients whose C-suite aren't on board with the employee engagement agenda. And employee engagement has gone a long way, probably sort of six or seven years ago, if you talked about internal comms as a specialism, your mind would go to sort of shite newsletters that were being sent out or just something that perhaps you wouldn't be proud of as a creative and a strategic person. And that has changed massively. I guess 2008, 2009 is when employee engagement was born. And since then, we have seen a real change in how it's dealt with. So I still feel a little bit of that when I'm dealing with clients who are maybe a, a little bit further behind and think it's a, a sort of one and done approach with with colleagues and not like a really iterative experience for colleagues that they have to have throughout their whole life cycle to really be engaged and be a brand ambassador. And then you've got the other side of it, I guess, which is if only we could tie up how people are actually feeling and doing with what brand are doing, with what the the strategy, the business strategy team are doing. If you, if you, when you get an organisation that has brought the, that sort of triumvirate together, that's when you start to see really meaningful change, which is why, you know, I am excited by the, the McCann Synergy combo, because I do think that we're going to be able to start approaching it and sort of tying off both of those ends. Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting to hear if you're able to talk about any in particular, maybe you can generalise it, but what, what kind of research do you do when you start out on a project? So yeah, loads. Um, We've always been, I think like most agencies, but we've always been an insight-led agency. Again, depends on the client. Sometimes clients are very willing just to jump to creative and ignore the sort of need for that colleague research. But generally speaking, we're, we're operating in the same sort of research field as a normal strategy team in a different marketing agency. So lots of focus groups, workshops, surveys, ethnographic studies, consultancy, actually living a day in the life of our people. So God, my team have been on um, shifts in the cinema. They've been on um, been on with the refuse collectors collecting rubbish from the streets. Like we've, we've sort of between us done it all, contact centres for some of our big retailers, really understanding what the daily life is like for that colleague so that we know how best to engage them. So I'd say from a research perspective, we're probably up there with what you'd expect from a more traditional agency Mm. do you find that the the genre the genre of language when you're working specifically on employer brand is similar to what you might find in public facing or consumer brands Uh, and i'm saying often i found that to feel a little bit closer to sloganeering a a little bit more propagandistic a little bit more pre cliches better together all that kind of stuff uh and the thing is businesses aren't especially at the top usually very empathetic and so they can feel a disconnect between the language it can feel i'm not saying your work at all but from what i've seen having been around it a little bit sometimes it feels a bit truman show like like what what no one talk no one talks like this and at, and at the same at the same time it's very easy to feel a disconnect from what the employer brand is trying to communicate and then watching the leadership and how they communicate and what matters to them yeah so, 100% i think um, the the tricky thing with i think lots of you know it's 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 corporate bs basically and it's how how can you get around that and speak from a human to a human while still creating an employer brand or a headline that is inspirational and gets people wanting to join your business. And 
the best way to do that is to your first question is through the research and and collecting employee stories and proof points of that fancy headline so that it's so much more than just that slogan when i think about some of my sort of most proud employee brands that i've worked on they're employee brands that are it's hard to say unique is anything ever unique probably not but um definitely um feel really ownable by that brand and are led from the employees every single time it's something that one of probably my favorite employer brand um, was a brand called the journey makers and we created that off the back of one comment that a guy said in research where he said i don't they're a vehicle leasing business i don't i don't lease vehicles to just help people get from a to b i've got myself an estate car and i don't need an estate car because all i do is go in and out of the city and i could just have a much smaller zippy car but i've got it for the two weeks a year that I go down to Cornwall with the kids and I've got surfboards and three children and a dog and five suitcases and I need a big car. That's why I lease vehicles. And you hear things like that and you're like, ah, oh, so you're creating an experience. You're, you're creating journeys. You're doing so much more than just leasing a load of vehicles to the big corporates. And when you start to get into that emotive space, just like with any good brand um, and any good branding strategy, you start to be able to tell the story and tell it through the employees as well. I mean, I, I worked with um, the former head of employee brand at booking.com and their employee stories, um, it's amazing. It's a, a series called Perspectives. They are more subscribed, more listened to than any other digital content that they've ever produced. Mm. And because people want to hear from people. Mm. Oh, I've got a theory. I've not found research on this, but the power of audio specifically through internal podcasts to increase empathy within groups, I think is, you know, I've, I've quietly suggested it to a few companies, mm-hmm. especially within, within the agency world, you know, interview the creative director, interview the uh, a copywriter, a strategist, yeah. CEO. Uh, the challenge with a lot of this stuff, and you, you must have to be careful with what you do because you're trying to get honesty out of people when there isn't really that much loyalty these days at the very least. The idea of loyalty is often one communicated from people with power as an expectation of the people who don't have the power. So how do you try to create an environment in your research where honesty matters? Yeah. And and what are some techniques that you have to try to get it out of people as well? Yeah. I guess also that loyalty point you you sort of summarised there, if people focus more on truly engaging the people in their business, their loyalty and their brand ambassadors and therefore their sales would shoot up. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have interviewed and and sort of done groups with people who, you know, you cut them down the middle and they bleed those brand colours. But that's in a a brand where they've been treated well and possibly where there's there's a um, culture of long service as well. It's hard to create employer brand loyalty with people who leave every couple of years mm. but the test is you know do they come back so how to create honesty for this stuff partly it's through a creative approach you know the vast majority of people that come to focus groups that i've run have no idea what an employer brand is they don't even know they don't even really know what a brand is they are um normal people who don't deal with this world at all So there's lots of nice and sort of creative ways you can get people opening up and talking. One thing that springs to mind, um, I don't know if this reference will go with you, Mark, or with your global audience, but have you ever heard of something called Gogglebox? Uh, Is that where 
you watch people watching television? Yes, you got it. You got it. Okay. So it's a TV show in the UK. Um, but what's sweet about it is people watch, you're watching people watch telly. Yes. And it's all about the little conversations and anecdotal chats they have whilst the telly's on. Um, and it's, 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 it's a lovely example of just human spirit and people and family and so on. And so for one of our clients, we did um, a really cool version of Gogglebox and we got people sitting on the sofa filming it, but um, not too obviously. And we had people sitting on their sofa. We gave them some prompts of things they could talk about if they wanted to. And we, we would then just listen to what they said. And that was for a, a transformation project. Mm. And it was called So Far, So Good. Um, spelt sofa so good and mm -hmm. that was a you know it's like those little easy ways to just um get people feeling comfortable talking about it mm -hmm. the the other key thing i think is through not always relying on groups because we all know that people when asked a question give a response whereas what you really want is their reaction their sort of innate innate reaction which is why the the ethnographic stuff we do works really well um just created an employer brand for a pub chain um, in the UK, my strategist absolutely loved going to all of the pubs. <laughs> As you can imagine, she did. She did. She really went above and beyond for that one. I, uh, uh, I hear that England is number one in the in the world, the history of the world at uh, going to pubs. Oh, oh yeah, hundred percent. Sorry, Scotland and Ireland. No, it's, it's definitely and Wales. Don't forget Wales, Mark. <laughs> um, she says as a Welsh woman. Um, but yeah, for, for those guys, we spent time behind all of their pub bars um, and helped them, you know, running the food out, um, working with them side by side. And then also in a separate exercise, just being sat in the corner of, of the pub for a whole day, watching what happened, mm. watching the interactions, hearing little bits of conversation. And that's where you start to, to feel the spirit of a company mm. rather than be told what the spirit is. And those are often two different things. Yeah. I like that. I like that. I, I, I haven't done groups that much recently. I like to do internal stakeholder interviews as phone calls and it could yeah. be with a CEO who's actually connected to what they're about. If I can get access to them, it's, it's like a three hour interview. And I don't know if you do a lot of one-on-ones, but what I've found is it can take sometimes like 30 to 40 minutes to get someone through their sound bites. Oh, and, and even through that, some leaders who really take leadership seriously, they're watching TED talks and they're reading books, they're listening to podcasts yeah. and just trying to understand if they're using someone else's soundbite or like, where did that come from? That's a really interesting thought is, did that just come to you? You sort of have to, yeah. um, I hate using the word unpack because apparently when you do a podcast, you have to use the word podcast in the podcast and then talk about unpacking things all the time. And I've just done both <laughs> of those things and I hate myself right now. But, but it's like, where, where did that come from? Is that yours? And they might yeah. say, oh, no, I watched it in a TED Talk. And you're like, oh, okay. And what did that make you think about? And so you have to gently go down to actually find what's in there, which is yeah. fun. Yeah, and I think that's the piece where it's, it's talking to them like people and mm -hmm. not having airs and graces because they're the CEO or being scared to ask questions. It's, it's having a conversation like you would if you didn't know they were the CEO. And I totally agree with you. I find that actually not just with senior leaders and with lots of people. So part of um, the strategy offering that, that we have is a team of coaches, because you can imagine there is so much within the world of employee engagement that can be achieved if people were able just to release some personal barriers or mm -hmm. as a manager of a team, if you were able to be coached to be a better communicator or understand why it is that you're not, you don't enjoy communicating in the first place, so on and so forth. 
And those sessions are always two hours. And I always get clients saying, oh, can you do it in less? And I say, mm. no, because it takes the first hour just to find out what the person actually needs to talk about. And then we do the work in the second hour. Oh, that's funny. It's funny. Uh, the other thing I find interesting is let's say you're interviewing up to 10 internal stakeholders. You don't always know who's going to be the most insightful. And if you identify as being more intuitive or intuition uh, centric, mm. big, word, big words today. Uh, if, if you identify a lot more with intuition and perhaps like qualitative research, feeling things and analyzing things in a way that don't always have to involve numbers, uh, you might be suspicious, for example, of getting time with a finance department or a CFO. And yet yeah, every now and then they could be all legal, but every now and then they can be some of the best interviews. You, you just yeah. don't know. Yeah, for sure. I think it's, um, it's all about the conversation you're having and the questions that you're asking. And when, when you're in the employer branding space, you know, you're asking people, you know, what makes you proud about this place? Or um, why do people leave? Why would you leave? And you're asking questions that are actually inherently personal and you don't, you don't get a, I'm really proud of our financial returns, actually. That, that's not what the CFO would say because what you're asking about is sort of striking at a chord a bit deeper than just job level. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What's, uh, what are some of your favorite questions to ask senior, senior leaders to understand what they're about? Yeah, I think one thing that I often challenge leaders with, especially when we are, let's say we're working with the SLT, senior leadership team on a project. And if you're lucky enough to get a brief, believe it or not, that's, um, that's still something we're working on in the employee branding, employee engagement space is good quality briefs from clients um, or briefs at all. When you are speaking to those guys, what you want to be asking there is why should people give a shit? You know, why do people care about this cost cutting campaign? Or why should people care about GDPR or these things that can be at the surface really dry and it's it's trying again every single time to get down to a human level like what's in it for the employee why should they care why will they go and fill out this form or download this new hr app or why is it what what's the what's the truth for the employee there mm. and there are lots of different ways of asking that and depending how well you know them and how um what sort of character they are sometimes you can get to a place of saying yeah 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 but I'm, I'm Joe Bloggs in the distribution center. Why do I give a shit about it? And you can, you can start to ask those sorts of questions in some, some relationships. Mm -hmm. I think the other one as well that I, I come up with a lot is if you had everyone in the room, everyone in your business in the room, and you just had 10 seconds with them or a minute with them, what would you say? that obviously pertains to this project mm -hmm. and it's trying to it's trying to get clients to really um bury down into that single-minded proposition that we spend hours and hours crafting and, and rightly so but but trying to hear it underneath all of the layers of business speak and corporate language and just trying to hear what that sort of one truth is at the bottom of it yeah, so how do you do that? Because there, there can be a feeling when you're doing employer brand work that you're just this like veil of empathy that is not actually true. And there's plenty of research that talks about how there are relative to the population more sociopaths and leadership roles than uh, outside. I think there are, it's mm -hmm. like four to, four to one or something. Wow. 
uh, Power Does Corrupt, there's research that talks about how when you become more powerful and you become richer, your empathy drops, you, you become less able to experience other people. There's mm-hmm. also research about meetings and how uh, most people don't think, I'm just, I'm being a bit broad with the research that I have it in front of me, but a lot of people don't think meetings are very useful and they think there are too many of them, except for the leader in the room of the meeting, usually because they speak the most. Yeah. And, and if people, they're speaking the most, they're hearing the messages they want to hear. Yep. Yeah. And then people in leadership roles have often been, often, this is not to be cynical about it, often been good at getting and keeping power. Mm-hmm. So as a strategist, to someone who's doing research and talking to people like this, and that's not everyone, but there are probably echoes of what I just said in most people in, in some kind of leadership position. How do you work out what's real? Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, you hear a lot of the same stuff from different brands. And so when you're dealing with, especially leadership, it's trying to really ascertain, actually, I've got a specific brief here. My brief is to get people to care about what you're saying. And by people, I mean your employees. And for me, it helps having that narrow focus sometimes to be able to really just keep bringing it back to, but what does it mean to colleagues? What do colleagues need to know, feel and do for this to be a success? How will we know when that has happened? What will, what will success look like for us? And trying to continually move them down the sort of creative brief template that I have in my mind, rather than the um, company agenda or the company narrative that they're, they're used to going through. Mm-hmm. I think also there's a piece there around, um, and it, it depends on the leader you have, I think, and, and, and the business you have and, the, and specifically the culture that exists within that business. But it's the best thing when you've got a client who knows that their specialism is, uh, let's get back to the pub. So their specialism is hospitality and breweries, say, but my specialism is getting the best out of your people. Or if we're on an employer branding project, it's hearing from your people and using that truth to get more people through the door. I think it's helping them recognise through um, through more than just, you know, cold pitches, but through the relationship that you have with them, that actually I'm not going to touch your area of expertise. So, so let me have mine and, and let me guide you through these questions and these responses and this approach, because I know that will get the right response for you, for you and for your people. And the more that you can back that up, especially for the SLT crowd with evidence, statistics, measurement from, you know, around the world, there's, there's loads that sort of come straight off the top of your head. I'll be working on transformation projects with, um, with businesses and they won't know that 70% of transformation projects fail, according to McKinsey, but they're 30% more likely to succeed if employees are invested in the goal. And that's when I can say, right, do you see that? That's, that's why we need to actually spend some of your huge transformation budget, the £55 million budget you've got for your transformation. We need to use a, a, a 0.5% of it for a colleague campaign here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's trying to use those sorts of things as well. Even better if you've got the studies from their business, like we talked about earlier, you've got those surveys, you've got that qualitative research where you can start to hold a mirror up for them. That is a mirror to the organization that they don't get access to. They don't know what Joe blogs on the shop floor wants and needs. And that's where the the consultant or the agency really does have the, the power, I guess, the sort of the, the, the hand of authority. 
Yeah, it's it's we it, it's it's funny because if you if you haven't worked in this space and you might look and some people would look down on this right they want to write the new creative brief for that new German fancy luxury car right and they're like employee engagement employer brand but the thing is that you depending on your personal needs you might actually find a lot of meaningful work here by helping people feel seen in ways that they haven't felt seen before and that can also include the leadership who are because some leaders are more empathy and intuition oriented, helping them understand themselves better. And that leads me to the, the topic of heroism for a strategist within this kind of work. Uh, mm. A couple of examples that I did not expect to enjoy in the way that I enjoyed them is not to say that they're not valid were uh, a ma massive research project. And one of the main outputs was a keynote presentation for a very big business leader that presented at a, at a conference and part of that presentation involved this person's personal story. And it wasn't an ad, it wasn't on television, it wasn't a new product or a new innovative service thing. You're not entering it in can, no. but to see that person or to hear how coherent that person felt in themselves to be able to tell their story and to be able to connect it to what they're trying to do in a, this person has like a billion dollar responsibility, right? That was beautiful. Uh, mm -hmm. And there are other small pieces of heroism, such as when a when someone who like a lot of CEOs are trying to build up their presences online. And one of the struggles I see a lot of people have is that the way they talk, once they trust you, they could talk like we're talking now. And then when they turn up on a LinkedIn or on a blog post or an interview, yeah. that disappears. And you like, no, hang on, where's the other person? Where's the other person? And as that person comes out, that, that's like a for me this beautiful gentle heroism. Mm. Where, where's your heroism in the work that you do? Where do you feel heroic? Oh, what a, what a great question. And I was smiling then when you were saying that, because uh, yeah, I've experienced that with lots of leaders as well. And I've met leaders for the very first time uh, a little while ago. I was with one of my, um, a, a big client and uh, I was having lunch with them, um, a load of them before running a, a big workshop for their senior leadership team. And I was chatting along and then later on got introduced to the CEO only to realise that that was the the chap that I'd, I'd shared lunch with and, you know, just had a really good laugh with. And that that's, you know, I could tell straight away, he's an authentic leader. People will like him. People will be loyal to him. And that's, that's that difference there. So when do I feel like a hero in my job? I think there's a few, there's a few places. Um, I've got an incredible team that I've, I've built from, from scratch. I was the first strategist that joined Synergy for, for one of it years ago now. So looking at how the strategy function in, within the agency has grown in that time and at the incredible people that I have um, working with me on the team now, I, I often feel like, um, I, d I don't know whether I feel heroic, but I certainly feel lucky and inspired and, um, and like I, I do my best to, to lead them to, to greatness. I think then the next, the next stage where I really feel like that and you are absolutely spot on when you said, um, there's there's purpose and there's meaning in this sort of work. Um, I had I have had many opportunities to come out of employee engagement, communication, and and strategy, and and head into more traditional marketing, media planning, whatever. And I've thought about it loads, and I'm always tempted by it, to be completely honest, because there is that sort of you know the sexiness of the brands and seeing your seeing your stuff on billboards and all of that sort of stuff, and and winning can awards and so on. And for an ambitious person, all of that stuff does tick a box for me. But what keeps me in this specialism now, apart from the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm in it and it's my niche and, and there is something incredible about that, but it's that ability to make a difference um, in that 
essentially when we go to work, we're just selling hours of our life to our employer. And if you think of it as that transactional, well, it's, it's quite depressing, but you also think of that times the billions of people in the world and just think, just imagine if the whole world felt engaged, they felt heard, they felt listened to, they felt like they had a manager that motivated them and cared about them. And just imagine how different our world would be. And I think, I think America, the stats are only 30% of workers in America are classed as engaged. And that, there's a sort of really interesting business proposition behind that when you think um, companies with engaged workers are four times more profitable. They outperform their peers by over 140%. So there's definitely that bit that's fascinating as a sort of quite a commercial person. I, I love that bit. Mm. Um, but then there's the bit about helping people come to work and be themselves and not have to hide their anxiety, their mental health issues, their sexuality, their hobbies, their family, the things they're passionate about or the things they're scared of. And I, I love the opportunity to be able to help people come to work and feel like they can bring their whole self to work. Mm -hmm. And I feel, I think I feel heroic when I'm working on campaigns that I really do think will make that difference. And it's not every campaign. I'd, I'd love to have that feeling on every campaign. It's not, it depends on the client. It depends on the culture. It depends on the brief. Um, but there are some where you sort of sit back and think, yeah, I've, I've made a difference to some people today. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And for, for those of you who are new to the space or considering about working in it, the, I'd say there's an, early set of books of the modern era, which would, for me at least, goes back to Drive by Dan Pink and Obliquity yeah. by John Kay, where you can understand yeah. some of these concepts and the importance of autonomy and self-mastery and, uh, you know, some kind of, I was going to use the word purpose, but I know that people in, in England have a very complicated relationship with that word, but a sense of meaning. And yeah. Read Viktor Frankl if you want to read about meaning. Mm -hmm. um, the idea of bringing your whole self to work, I find it problematic it's so easy to say and yeah it is the thing is we have lots of different personalities in us so when you say bring my whole self to work what are you talking about and i feel like that needs a rebrand what what, what does that even yeah, mean i think you're right i think it, it it is cliched now that that expression i think it's about giving people more options to be honest mark um and i think it's about people feeling free to talk express be the different parts of themselves that they are at home if they want to be in the workplace. I, and I don't think that's achieved by a diversity campaign. It's absolutely not. It's about an organisation. I'm yet to work with any... Actually, I'm just about to start working with one, thinking about um, thinking about our, our new biz sheet, but startups that are going through hypergrowth. But I would love one day to work with a startup and just like the two founders or whatever and then work with them all the way through hypergrowth and beyond because I would love to be able to model the ideal culture from the very beginning mm -hmm. and that's where things like that get born so that's where a true sense of belonging it comes from your leadership but it drips down through your managers and so when I think of my team um, and I've got three strategists that, that work in my team at the moment I, I truly believe they feel they can bring their whole self to work but that's because they've got a manager that does that's because they're surrounded by people who do something similar. Um, and that's because we've created an, an environment, even just within my little team of psychological safety. Mm -hmm. And it's that, that piece that I think is missing from so many places. And the response too often is, yeah, let's run a diversity campaign. 
Okay, yeah, let, let's let's get the guy with tattoos to um to front it. That is that's not the answer. Mm. Yeah, I feel like the rebrand could be no more complicated than bring your quirky self to work, but like not your demon self and not all that like crazy, crazy, crazy stuff that you do. And I'm using crazy not in the mental health sense, but like, well, that's offensive. Take your hand yeah. out of your pants. You're sitting on the couch. I didn't say to bring that yeah. person to work today. Uh, but I, that's the sense of like you're not going to get penalized for being a little bit quirky, which I think is important. Uh, and then I think the other thing that with the, and you touched on this just there, that you get a sense of when you're working around employer brand is how much behavior is brand. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And, and beliefs. And what we do is who we are. Um, and I think I've been really fascinated by the response to the coronavirus, which, um, depending on this, when this airs, maybe we'll be out of it. Fingers crossed. Um, but I've been really interested in seeing how the different brands are sort of playing their field with, um, with coronavirus and with the pandemic. And, I don't know whether you've noticed, but how interesting is it that for the first time, how they're treating their people is a message that is worthy of their TV ads. You're seeing retailers, all of, all of the sort of key workers suddenly celebrating their people mm. because of what they're doing. And I admire that and I respect that. And I think it's spot on. And these people are doing us um, a national sort of service at the moment. But why isn't that all the time? Mm-hmm. Why, why is there not that level of pride and the equality between how we treat our people and, and, and how we treat our marketing budget and those two things being together and the transparency between here are all the things we've done to support our people through the coronavirus pandemic. That stuff should happen all the time, in my opinion. And that's when, coming back to your point about behaviours, that's it. So the company is behaving in a way that is congruent with who they are. And then colleagues will feel that they'll pass that on. They will be more engaged. They will be, so therefore they will be more profitable. They will be more innovative. You're four times more likely to pitch a new idea that will benefit the business. If you're an engaged colleague, you will stay longer. You will take less sickness leave or certainly less presenteeism. And you are more likely to help either sell if you're in a position that can sell, um, through, even if it's just through brand advocacy, mm-hmm. or if not, you're more likely to recommend to your friends and family to come and work for that place, um, in which case you're helping re- you know, the cost of recruitment come down. Mm-hmm. And there are so many strands that come off a really well-engaged colleague that I think are often overlooked. And it's interesting to see how employee engagement at the moment is being used as a bit of a marketing hook yep. and a way to sell more product. Well, also, I've not read a research on this, but hearing you talk, it'd be interesting to hear research that covers not just what you're talking about, but also the way that some brands have been using employees in their public-facing communications, especially in the past decade. I don't think it was that common in most categories, but now even, let's say you look at liquor, for example, there are a few conventions in that category, like the ingredients or the taste or the origin or slash problem story, right? And then potentially who drinks it. So the the actual consumer or the aspirational consumer who drinks it so that, you know, if Mm. you drink it, you're going to be a bit like them. Uh, And then increasingly there are, you know, because of craft brands coming out, you see these multinational brands, which Mm. are very distant, suddenly doing these ads, which are like, we have employees too. They wear pants like you and, you know, they're not complicated individuals. You should drink yeah. our drink. And so it's, yeah. 
interesting to see this sort of stuff happening. Yes, Sam Sam Adams is a nice example of that. I think um, lots of their lots of their film and and their video certainly you could think was a recruitment campaign and isn't. And I've seen that also. I remember just feeling a real sense of pride in how the industry is is shifting probably a couple of years ago now when I noticed um, McDonald's running a um, essentially an employee brand ad mm-hmm. during primetime Saturday night telly. And I just remember thinking, yes, like this, this is it. This, if, if we're starting to view recruitment and employer brand on an equal level to sales and marketing, then we're starting to get there. Yeah, that's interesting. So what are some of the other big public campaigns that have been about uh, talent attraction, as they would put it? Uh, for, for me, one of the main ones that comes to mind is the big GE campaign, like, what yeah. was that, like four or five years ago, which was about, there was an interaction between a, a growing child adult, like a teenager or someone just leaving college, uh, talking to their parents about how they were going to go work at GE and the parents are like, why would you do that? You're a developer. That's weird because GE does their factories or whatever. And, and it, was, it was a really well done campaign. Are there other examples that come to mind? Yeah, there are. Um, well, do, do you remember the army um, campaign? I don't know whether you saw that from not long ago and they talked about how they need snowflakes and this and that and, yeah. and um, the different sort of millennial archetypes. And it did come under quite a lot of um, criticism for, you know, for and against for... Um, Oh, just that, I guess you could argue the sort of slightly lazy take on millennials and and that sort of stuff. But again, I'm pleased when those things get out there into the mainstream and are being talked about on things, even if they're being talked about on campaign, if it's an employee related thing, I'm delighted to see it. Mm. Um, But for that, that that ad actually got um, into mainstream press as well, because it was it was like critiqued fairly heavily, I think, at the time. But I love to see it. Mm. And and I love that, you know, I, I know that what's at the basis of that is they'll have considered their, they'll have segmented the audience that they want to recruit because things like employee segmentation is far behind sort of market segmentation that, that you guys will be used to and just expect off the back of a brief. So I know that they'll have probably segmented their, their audience that they want, um, drilled deep into what, what could be a truth for that audience. And then they've put money in a recruitment campaign behind it. And it was, you know, a multimedia campaign as well, which again is unusual for, for this field at the moment. And so whenever I see things like that, I do feel a little spike of, I don't know whether it's pride, but it's something that's, that shows a, a signal that something's changing. Mm. What about relaunch fatigue? Uh, I, I went to a relaunch of McCann, a global one, about 10 years ago in San Francisco. I was really mm. excited and uh, ended up talking to you know a few, a few old-timers from the network, and they're like, yeah. uh, it's just another one. And then in New York, when I was working here, you know, they were in, in a couple of places. I have to be vague, and then in being vague, I realize I might not be very useful in my conversation <laughs> here. But uh, a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, there's a new CEO every two or three years, and we go through this all the time, and there yeah. can be quite a lot of disdain, sometimes to the point where you think that the employee saying that is like, I'm going to outlast the CEO. I don't care what happens. <laughs> I, do, you, do you come across with the categories you work on much, re, like internal brand relaunch fatigue? Like, oh, here we go again. Yeah, 100%. And... That typically happens, I would say, more in the the global corporates where there's a sense of um, fatigue and cynicism with whatever it is we might be launching. And 
on those briefs, I'm always desperate to get to the next layer of client above my client or maybe a few more and just say, let's have a look at all of the, say, um, comms tools that you've, you've launched or you've launched a learning platform, you've launched a HR platform, you launched a different learning platform, you launched a reward and recognition platform, you've got um, an employee referral platform, you've got all of these things. And now, really, you want to launch another thing? Why don't we instead use your budget to refine the platforms and channels you do have and make them work harder for you? Because yes, 100%, you just get the eye roll from, you can imagine it, you see it go out on the sort of digital screen or um, the email go out and you just know people are just going to be like, oh, again. But what you can do, and I've got one client in particular in mind with this, is turn what could feel like a similar message being given again and again into something that people really look forward to. And this is slightly different because my, my example just then was channel or platform overload, which happens all the time. Whereas I guess this example is more about um, reiterating or reconfirming a proposition or a set of values or whatever it might be. But we've got one client, um, a big cinema chain, and we run their um, vision and values campaigns every year or so, and we, certainly we did for a long time. And every single year we would run um, a, a V&V, vision and values campaign. And then six months later, we'd run their learning campaign. Mm. And you can imagine people in cinemas, they don't have access to computers. They're not allowed their phones out. They're shift workers. Some of them have got little staff rooms the size of your sort of um, understairs cupboard. Other ones have got uh, huge staff rooms because they're, you know, the premier cinemas in, in the capitals or whatever. And so you have to get so creative with how you're going to get people excited about the values, living the values and really sharing and collaborating with each other about that stuff. And honestly, like one year we did a festival theme and it was um a great sort of um they even had their own little festival dolls they all had to decorate they love getting involved with things themselves we've had a sort of murder mystery thing we've done some amazing stuff we did um a huge advent calendar for when it was a leap year 29 days of um of february and there was a different door they had to all open each day and there'd be a task or a surprise in each of them it was huge all of these things oversized massive storybooks that have traveled the different markets in europe um, for people to share their stories about why they love that place and honestly i could go on and on and i think when as you can tell when you um start to get to a point of a client that wants to be creative and wants to push the boundaries of um standard channels that's when the messages that you do need to repeat actually be, become something that people look forward to and they you know you get to february and they're like buzzing about what the vnv campaign is going to be that year and that's that's a lovely sign mm, that is cool uh, and is demand up or down for coaching ceos how to rap badly and in a potentially racist way on stage in front of the employees is that up or down demand for that so I'd say for us generally, coaching has been one of the, the biggest um, leaps over the last couple of years. And I remember when, when we launched our coaching service, I did have a few from, from very experienced people whose opinions I, um, I trust. I did have a few sort of raised eyebrows about whether it was right that an employee engagement agency essentially is, is doing coaching. Hey, Rhiannon, uh, I, was, I was talking about rap coaching. Oh, I don't know what that is, Mark. Uh, so 
let's say you're in a large company in Seattle that makes mm. a lot of a lot of technology, and you're the CEO. Uh, apparently, every year you have to get up in front of the entire audience at the annual kickoff or whatever it is, and do a really bad rap, and you have no <laughs> business doing it. Oh, sorry, that should have been a funny moment, shouldn't it? I'm being uh, very, I'm being deliberately dry just to see if like how long I can draw out the confusion. Uh, no, yeah, I um, I've never heard of it, so I'd say it's it's, it's not a big one for us. Oh. <laughs> I wish, I wish it share, was. Share of market of CEO rap coaching, not big <laughs> enough synergy. <laughs> I've, um, I've, got, um, I've got a few coaches that I reckon would give it a good go, though. But yeah, not not yet. <laughs> so awkward. <laughs> Why does CEOs <laughs> do these things? Like, I mean, in in the US, and I know in England, you would probably have this have this response, and I know the the style and the culture is different there. But I, the, in the US, I mean. The company and the way that they often do public engagements or the, the way that they publicly try to engage with their employees, it's like church. They're, they're trying to create this in experience that triggers a bunch of awe in people and keeps them attached to the company. It's quite mm. spectacular to see when, if you don't grow up in that culture, it can feel uh, a bit too much. And I'm sure God, that yeah. what you do in the UK is not like that. Uh, what, what kind of things are you measuring to prove effectiveness? Yeah, um, measuring is something that we, or measurement, I should say, is something that we've worked on massively over the last, I'd say, probably three years in particular, because we recognise that if we ever want to get an employee engagement at the C-suite level, and it is, for a lot of people it is, but it's not as much as it should be, not for how much impact it has. And we started to recognise that actually we will never get there if we don't measure properly. So now when we look at measuring effectiveness of work or of a culture, because often our work, I can, sure, I can measure the effectiveness of our campaign, fine. But what we're actually trying to get past is way past those vanity metrics and actually how is this affecting a culture? How, how has behaviour en masse changed? And so we're often looking at things like um, productivity, um, where you can measure if people are sort of going the extra mile or not, mm-hmm. um, linking what we do to customer experience. So one of my, one of my favorite clients, um, the journey makers one that I referenced earlier, they, I loved them because they focused on their employer brand and their employee engagement strategy first, because so employee engagement essentially is from hire to retire. Are you giving a consistent sort of brilliant, compelling experience at every single touch point for that colleague, just as you would with sort of customer journey mapping. It's the same for colleagues. And this client, we did all of that for their colleagues. And only at that point did they then turn the focus to customers. And I love that because we were able then to track customer um, NPS, customer surveys, wait time, how quickly faults were resolved and so on and, and customer problems were resolved with the work that we were doing from, from an employee engagement space. And that's cool. So it's, it's trying to look often at CX and EX as a combined metric. That's useful. Um, other metrics that we, we use a lot are employee engagement surveys, which every business tends to do, but lots of them tend to do it once a year. And it's one huge, unwieldy survey that you don't fit. And I've, I've been part of a big corporate, so I, I know this feeling myself. You just don't think anything's going to happen off the back of it. Um, and we're trying to help clients break that down as, fine, keep that as your holy grail of measurement and, and the thing that sets your strategy for the year. But let's get those pulse surveys going monthly or quarterly. And let's see how anxious are people feeling? 
How happy were they yesterday? How well do they feel their manager communicates with them? And let's let's try and get to the um, the key tenets that make someone happy in work. And that isn't always the focus of the big sort of employee engagement surveys that go out because what's often being measured there is business strategy and understanding of that. Whereas often what I'm interested in, depending on the brief, sometimes that's exactly what I am interested in, but sometimes it's more about how are you feeling day to day and how does that track and where are there groups? I've got um, a partner business that I work with sometimes who can basically help you work out where there are departments or teams who are highly um that the climate of that particular team is so engaged and productive um and transformational in its approach and then it's fascinating because you can start to look at what is that team doing what is that leader doing and how can we map that across the rest of the business and what difference would it make if we did and that's that stuff gets pretty pretty interesting yeah that's that is uh there's a couple of thoughts there one is how complicated slash complex, maybe the same thing, but potentially different. The idea of happiness at work is it's, I think it's one of those things that's easy to say, it's easy to think that you want. And then it's like, well, what is happiness? What does it even mean? And how much Uh, of it are we responsible for as the employer? Yeah, exactly. And then is the employer maybe overselling the dream of being an employee by even talking about it at all? And, 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 you know, you can be happy in one minute and two minutes later and not feel happy. Is that okay? Yeah, it's probably okay. I, I think that's a complicated one. And then the other thing that I don't know if this has come up through your research, but, uh, you know, I'm, I, when I've managed teams, I lo- like to work relatively informally to the point where I I'm not even a big fan of an annual review. Mm. And I just like to talk to people, check in on them, talk about what's happening, what, what, uh, what we're doing in the moment. And in one very, very large place I worked at, I, w- I was talking about how resistant I was to the annual review process and how I tried to communicate with people kind of in the moment and very often. And the head of HR was like, yeah, most managers don't do that. Most mm-hmm. managers are like bossing people yeah. and not giving useful feedback, possibly being passive aggressive. And so the annual review is actually to force the manager to sit down with the employee. And I was like, what is that? Do you, do you hear stories about that too? Yeah, you've, you've tapped into a sort of growing trend there, which is trying to move away from um, annual appraisals or biannual appraisals and moving towards a, a culture of continuous conversations. Yeah. Um, that's quite a key thing that, lots of lots of the biggies certainly some of the big consultancies have shifted to and lots of brands are trying to follow that the reason why that often fails and the reason why we still have oh, i reckon 70 percent of businesses going down the, the annual thing is because we just expect managers because they were good at their task job we just expect them to be good communicators and it is bonkers how can you expect a manager who was really really good at uh, stacking shelves in the warehouse and then you're going to promote them and suddenly they need to have a degree of emotional intelligence they need to feel accountable and responsible for their colleagues career development they need to be transparent but not too transparent they need to be honest they need to be all of these things to be a really great manager bring themselves to work charismatic blah, blah blah all of these things right and then you just expect out someone that was just good at stacking shelves. And I think one of the key things that needs to shift in, in my industry is actually, how are we making managers more capable and more able to do this stuff? How are we upskilling them? The answer is absolutely not 
sending them on a presentation skills course that won't work and that's why I, I did invest in the coaching within my team at Synergy because I, I really believe and, and my team believes and the agency believes that in order to help managers truly be effective managers that make a difference to bottom line employee engagement they need help to get there and that's mm. where that sort of coaching piece comes in yeah there's definitely a propagandistic reaction in a certain type of leader where they want to defend their reputation and if things aren't working it's because of other people and because their message isn't getting out there's obviously a big scandal happening right now with barcelona football team and that is a very public example of this where i think six board members just quit and a lot of corruption going on uh, and someone had hired a social media agency yeah. and were paying them almost 200 grand a month to protect their reputation but in so doing they were also sledging putting down all the other like the other soccer players and various yeah. other people and that's that's someone who's not that self-aware doesn't want to change is addicted to power and their solution to it is to defend and destroy and, and yeah as and compare that to, compare that to someone like Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool Football Club yep. and and the difference and if, if you've not listened to the eat sleep work repeat podcast featuring Jurgen Klopp I recommend it because I mean, football culture is a whole different type of employee engagement, which some of my, my guys at Synergy are fascinated by and, and would love to work on. Um, we've, got, we've got one football team in our books, but I think we'd like a few more because that, that leadership model is absolutely fundamental in those clubs. And I think it's, yeah, it's so interesting to look at what Barcelona FC are doing and the, the defence strategy um, and how different that might be if it was an employee engagement strategy. I think it's um, a lot of it comes down to leadership managers and, and simple things like role modeling, mm. which, do, which doesn't happen in so many businesses. It's true. It's true. It's true. Uh, for, for someone who's curious about doing strategy work in a different part of the industry and some of those people might be just exhausted by the pace, and it's not to say that you don't work incredibly hard, but some of them might be exhausted by the pace of the creative agency industry, especially in a large city, or they might be tired of friction that they're getting dealing with the creative department. And they're like, mm -hmm. it's got to be a different, different way here. Like what's, what do you think has been, I don't know, you've, we've spent <laughs> quite a while actually answering this question, but just, just by way of ending, what do you think, makes the type of strategy you do worth considering for someone who still wants to do strategy work but has never done it before? So the answer to that for me is that it is as creative as the work you do in a more traditional agency. Um, it's as strategic as you do, but you've got a refined captive audience who you know that by applying that sort of strategic creative nous and that specialism you have, you're going to make them hopefully over the long term get out of bed and want to go to work. And I think by, for me, I have the perfect blend of hugely stimulating, busy, <laughs> that typical agency life I have in bucket loads with incredibly challenging, difficult sort of intellectual levels of, um, of work and like the thinking part that I really enjoy. Plus I get to work with a, a sort of shit hot creative team who, who care about this stuff too and who, who are as passionate about employee engagement as I am. And then I get to combine all of that stuff, package it up and try and get people to come to work and feel a bit better about their day. And, and so I guess what it means is 
I think you get a greater sense of purpose than through a role where perhaps you're selling more product or pushing more services out. Um, it is about sales, of course, we're an agency, but it's, it's definitely about like the power of people and believing in that. Mm. Awesome. I, I, relate, I relate to that. Uh, where's the best place for people to find you personally on the internet? Cool. So I'm Reese Tweets, R-H-I-S Tweets on Twitter. Um, although I have to be honest, I don't use it loads for business stuff. I'm a bit of a lurker these days, but I do lurk around all the good, all the good strategists. So, um, so I'm always seeing what you guys are up to. Um, I, I think LinkedIn's probably where I'm most active at the moment. And that's Rhiannon Stroud, S-T-R-O-U-D. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining me today. I recently interviewed people in Bristol and uh, I know the people at McCann who bought you. I discovered just before this call and, and after this, not to date the interview, I'm interviewing someone from McCann Central, which is just a funny coincidence. So I have a whole day of Bristol and Birmingham and, uh, and, uh, and it's true. It's true. I just wish the Birmingham call would actually come with a delivered Indian curry. I'm just saying. I know, and a beer. Yeah, 100%. Um, well, do, um, come visit Bristol, Mark, and um, you can come and see all of your friends in different agencies and we'll, we'll take you out and see if our curries compare to the Brummies. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on Sweater today, Rhiannon. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to chat. Peace.